I'm now going to go through the lectionary. So we've we finished uh, a sermon series on the Psalms. And so the lectionary is uh, a powerful tool. For those that don't know, it's just essentially a set of scripture readings put together. It's, you know, hundreds of years old. And uh, often it follows the Christian calendar. So as you approach Christmas, the readings will focus on the birth of Christ, Easter, etc. You get it, right, during Pentecost and whatnot. And the people who constructed this, the church leaders that constructed this, did it intentionally connecting themes from the Old Testament, from the prophets, from the Psalms, from the Gospels, from the epistles. So if, like, every day there's a reading from the Old Testament, every day there's a reading from the epistle, like Epistle of Paul, every day there's a reading from the Gospel, and they often sort of weave together and intersect. If you were to read the lectionary passages every day, you would get through the entire Bible in three years. So it's not aggressive, like long passages each day, right? But Sundays in particular, the readings for Sundays are often powerful. So today I'm actually going to look at three of the readings. I'm going to look at uh, 2 Samuel, 2 Kings, and the Gospel of John because uh, there's this beautiful way in which uh, these collide or intersect with one another. And so the first reading, uh, it comes from 2 Kings, and this is a story about Elisha. So 2 Kings is in the Old Testament, right? This is sort of like a historical book looking at the history of Israel, those that led. Some of the kings were great, some of them were terribly wicked, and everything in between. Elisha is a prophet. Elisha is not a king. Elisha is a prophet. And Elisha's mentor was Elijah. So for those that know anything about the Bible, Elijah is one of the most quoted prophets uh, by Israelites. Like, Elijah's held incredible esteem, right? Elisha is one of his students, one of his disciples. And so now uh, Elijah is, is gone, and Elisha is, is trying to inspire and give guidance to uh, Israel and to Israel's king. So hear the story from 2 Kings chapter 4. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing Elisha 20 loaves of barley baked bread from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. I'm so sorry for... Sullivan, are you recording? Can you hit record for me? You already did it. I'm sorry. Why didn't I just trust? Look at my lack of faith. I'm already learning. So Elisha gets some barley bread, says, let's feed the people. There's a hundred. How are we going to do it? We trust God. They're all fed. There's leftovers. Does that remind you of a story? So, Elisha, faithful to God, trusts God, is able to, like, take what little he has, bless it, break it, share it, and there's enough. The second passage today is from John chapter 6, uh, which is not surprisingly the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Part of what's happening here is Jesus is identifying himself as in the line of Elijah and Elisha. I am doing the same work 
that these individuals were doing, right? But not just as a prophet of Israel, but as the son of God. But this is John chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. Thanks, Jesus. Trapping poor Philip. (laughs) So Joe Bankard answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one of these to have even a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with with five small barley loaves, a direct connection for, I mean, if you're an Israelite with any familiarity with the Hebrew Bible, you know what's going on here, right? Five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down, about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And I want you to hear the verse directly after this. Pay close attention. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world, of course, because we've, we've already heard the stories about Elisha and Elijah. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So these are two stories about feeding. And the stories are, I mean, one of the major elements to both is something like We trust God to feed us. We trust God to give us what we need. We trust God that we have enough, right? This is about faith, not just faith in what I believe, but faith in how I live. How can we take, right, a few loaves and a few fish and feed 5,000 people? You can't. The idea is that if we take what little we have and we bless it, we give it to God, God breaks it, God shares it, then we have enough. And it's beautiful, right, that God gives us our fill. And this harkens back, of course, to the temptation of Jesus. In the desert, the first temptation is, hey, Jesus, you're hungry, right? 40 days in the desert, and the devil's like, take the stones and turn them to bread. Feed yourself. Don't rely on God. Do it yourself. You've got enough. You've got the power. And, of course, Jesus says, you know, we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I trust God to fill me, to really fill me. And so I want to transition for a minute from food, literal food, to like the things we hunger for. Like what is it that you really hunger for? Because at some level, the stuff that I hunger for uh, is shallow. It's like entertainment or distraction or prestige. I want people to think well of me. I hunger for my reputation to be thought well of, right? Uh, I want to make more money. I want to have more stuff. I want to have more free time. I hunger for people to find me attractive. Like, I'm looking for all this stuff, right? It's why phones are so addictive, because it's, it's given me this stuff that I'm looking for. 
I want to feel good. I, how many likes did I get? What's going on in the world? I can feel like I'm connected even if I'm not. Somewhere deep in me, I know that what I'm really hungry, hungering for is nothing to do with that stuff. What really will satisfy me, the food that God offers, is nothing about that. But it's so hard to remind myself of that every day during the week. It's really hard. And so what I hunger for and what I hunger for are not the same. But I spend most of my time trying to fill my belly with food that will not satisfy. So these stories are like about barley bread, but they're not. It's like God will give you what you really need, what you're really hungering for if you let him, right? Okay, so the third piece of scripture comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11. You all know this story. And Sullivan, we don't have the slides for it, so it's okay. You're good. This is the story of King David. And chapter 11 starts, the time of year when the kings would go off to war. David the king didn't go there where he should be. He is hanging around the palace. And he's bored. And he's antsy. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, not knowing what else to do, I guess. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So he was like, okay, I'm going to send for her. So at some level, what David's hungering for is like, I'm guessing it has less to do with sex than it has to do with something he feels like is lacking inside of him. This will help fill me or satisfy me. David's whole life is like this. He's the king of Israel, the most powerful man in the nation, has had nothing but success, and yet here he is pacing around the palace roof like a little like hungry wolf, not knowing what will satisfy. Maybe Bathsheba, maybe her. Maybe that'll work. But of course, we live in a world, we know this doesn't work, and it never fills, and it never really satisfies. If you have money, you'll never have enough if that's what you look to fill you. If it's women, you'll never have enough, it'll never fill that void in your soul. You can hunger for it and try to achieve it, you won't, it won't work. It can be friends, it can be likes, it can be followers on Instagram, it won't, there will never, ever, ever be enough if that's what you hunger for and you try to satisfy. And so David finds this out like us the hard way over and over, has everything he could want, except he doesn't feel content inside his soul. He's not connected to God. The food that will satisfy eludes him. He's filled with insecurity. He's small. And so he uses his power to get what he thinks he wants. And all it does is destroy his family. It tears it apart. He ends up going to war with his son Absalom. I mean, it's nothing but misery for poor David because he can't figure out what will actually satisfy or fill. So I just want to contrast things for a moment. This is what I really want to talk about today. This, is, this will be the, the primary point I want to make. I want you to think about how David uses his power. He takes another man's wife. He decides, this is what I want. This is what will satisfy. And he uses his power to get it. He then has Uriah killed so that he doesn't have to feel guilt. 
I'm sure he found a way to justify this to himself as the king of Israel, like we all do. And I want you to contrast that use of power with the way Jesus engages power. He feeds people, they want to make him king, and he flees to be alone. The difference could not be more stark in how they deal with power. At every single turn, Jesus rejects it. He's not attractive. He has no political power, no military power. He has no money. His whole ministry has to be funded by other people. They want to make him king, and he runs away. But think about how much good Jesus could have done. Don't you, I mean, you know this went through his mind. How much good could I do if I just took power? If I just ruled, I could change the whole world. I could establish God's kingdom and show people what it looks like. I mean, think that's a real temptation, right? This is like the whole trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. Just give me the ring of power and I'll do such great things with it. But here's the deal. Here, Jesus is clued into something that none of us seem to be. That's exactly how we justify power. I'll do good with it. But humans inevitably can't handle it. We can't handle the ring of power. We abuse it. We become the very people we hate. Crushing, stepping on, manipulating, using it to fill our needs, the things we think we hunger for. That's how humans use power. And so I don't think Jesus rejects power. And by the way, this is a real theological disagreement. I don't think Jesus rejects power because he has to die on the cross. I don't believe that. I think Jesus rejects power as a moral call to every one of his followers to do the exact same thing. Humans are not equipped to handle it well. We will all be David. So instead, we have to divest ourselves of it. You might not agree with this, so I want you just to think about this for a minute. I love disagreement. It's wonderful. If you disagree with me, you're probably right. <laughs> you're probably on the right track. I don't think Jesus rejects power because he has to go to the cross and die. I think he rejects power as a moral call to his disciples that this is how we are to treat it. It's like a hot potato. It's like the ring of power that whispers in our ear, you could do so much good, Joe. If you had more money, more followers, a bigger church, a better, a bigger microphone, think about it. And what that will inevitably do is it will become about me and my ego and what I think will satisfy. So we're going to watch a clip from, it's rated R, so just be warned if you watch it, but it is uh, powerful. It's from the 90s. Uh, Al Pacino. One, uh, 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 Neo. Why can't I think of the guy's name? The guy that plays uh, The Matrix. Yeah. Keanu Reeves. Young Keanu Reeves. Uh, Al Pacino. It's called The Devil's Advocate. So you need to understand the premise before I show you the clip. So the premise of the movie is um, Keanu Reeves is a defense attorney. And he is confronted very early with a, with a giant moral decision. He recognizes his client's guilty, but power, prestige, and wealth will follow him if he can just get this person off. It only requires compromises his integrity, right? And so he does. He makes the wrong choice. And it, a comedy of horrible things ensue, orchestrated by Al Pacino, who is, in fact, the devil in this movie, right? So he's like the devil whispering in Keanu Reeves' ear. At the end of the movie, he is given a chance to break this chain of events 
and he literally is able to go back to the moment where he decides to lie and compromise his integrity, and he can reverse it all. He can tell the truth. He can stand up, and, and he gets a new chance. So he does it. He does the right thing. So he goes back to that very moment, and he, he says, no, I, I don't, I'm not going to fault the temptation this time. Now I'm going to stand firm. It's awesome. The crowd cheers. Yay, goodness wins. And what you're going to watch now is the final scene of the movie. So go ahead and play it. This story, this is the one, pal. This is the one you dream about. There is no story. A lawyer with a crisis of conscience? You gotta be kidding. It's huge. They're gonna disbar me, Larry. Right about that. Wait a second. Can they do that? Not when I get through with the story. We gotta talk, Kevin. You gotta give me an exclusive. This is wire service. This is 60 minutes. This is a story that needs to be told. It's you. You're a star. Call me in the morning. You got it. First thing. Bye, Larry. Vanity. Definitely my favorite sin. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Can I just say, this was 1995. It's your fault if you haven't watched this yet. How long do you want me to wait? Uh, I, 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 you can still buy a VHS tape that says Devil's Advocate on it, so I'm not, I'm not going to feel too bad, all right? It's not a new release, hot off the press. Um, <laughs> how, how true is that? The moment I am successful, I do something in ministry, suddenly it's like, man, I'm pretty good. And the moment it becomes about me, that's when that, that sense of, like, this is going to fill me. This finally, now, now my life's meaningful and purposeful. Look, look at all the good we're doing. The moment it, be, like, the moment it becomes about me, that, there's a problem. Now it's a power grab. Now it's about how can I use the influence I have to make me feel full, to, to make me feel satisfied. And so that's exactly what he does to Keanu Reeves. Wow, that's, this is a story. You're a hero. Look at what you did. It'll be 60 minutes. Well, call me tomorrow, right? Gotcha. Gotcha again. You think after David defeated Goliath, he didn't suffer from the same fate? <laughs> you killed who? You're amazing. Let's all follow David. So they come into the city chanting and singing. You think that might have played some role in David getting a big head? And then using his power later to get what he wants because he deserves it because I'm David. Contrast that with the person of Jesus. How do I make my life not about me? This is the million dollar question. How does my life become about something other than me? That's actually how my deep hunger gets satisfied. That's how I get full. That's the food that God offers. 
I don't have to worry about my own power, safety, comfort, prestige, wealth, fame. I can let go of all of that so that whatever I have is to empower other people. And I understand that I can imagine what you're saying, right? It's like, well, Joe, come on. Is it, always, is it really wrong if you can make a difference in the world? Is it really wrong if you, can, if you can take power, whatever it is, whether it's the money you have, the political influence you have, and to do good, is that really wrong? Not necessarily, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous the moment it becomes about you. Why are you doing it? Who are you doing it for? Those are the questions. And if you can answer those well, then I'm cool. But it, it is a, it's a baby step to it becoming about me. So if you're like me at all, you're somewhat frustrated and disillusioned by the state of the world quite often. So I, I get frustrated, like, how can this happen? How can we be so divided, like, politically? How can, how can the church be so divided? How can Christians not, not step up? Like, how... Shouldn't we be at least a little better, marginally better, than someone who doesn't believe in God at all? And then when I don't see it, it's like, what good is it? What am I even doing? What are we doing here, right? Do you, am I the only one who feels this way sometimes? Like, I'll, I'll get into a cycle of despair, right? So I, I'm, going to, I'm going to ruin your Sunday just a little bit. So I, I apologize in advance. So here are some of the things I've been thinking about, watching, listening to, and it's depressing. So I'm just going to let you know. But one of the things that I think is a, like one of the pillars of the problem, not the only problem, but one of the giant issues, one of the reasons that helps explain why we're in some of this mess is power. It is what we hunger for and how we try to fill that hunger. And so I recently watched Spotlight, the, the film about the Boston Globe that that uncovered the Catholic scandal in Boston. Mm -hmm. Subsequently, they've uncovered over 100 other cover-ups in other parts of the world, right? And we're not, I'm not, I know, I'm not Catholic, we're not Catholic. I do love the Catholic Church. I respect its history and tradition. This is not me bashing them, like, oh, Catholicism, that's the problem. As the Methodists, oh, we never use power poorly. So don't hear, don't hear this as like me bashing Catholic. This is me saying, when you give Christians lots of power, there's a huge motivation to cover things up. Because if we exposed the priest, then we lose prestige. People stop trusting us. People think that we're no better. People, so if we cover it up, we maintain our reputation and our power in the world. This is what motivates a scandal like that. Am I wrong? People in power making it about the institution themselves, maintaining control of the narrative, rather than something like fidelity to higher principles, like honesty, transparency, compassion, care for the least of these, like victims, or, I don't know, many of you know the ministry of Ravi Zacharias. He had his own, I mean, he was so huge that it was like Ravi Zacharias Ministries. But he passed away in 2020, but in disgrace, sex scandal. I mean, hundreds of masseuses across the world. I mean, just awful to hear and read about. Do you have that slide, Sullivan? It's okay if you don't. Um, so if you go to the next one. 
But this was a person, a Christian, who by all accounts transformed lives, changed people for the better, did an amazing amount for the gospel. And then at some point, you start a ministry after your own name, you have so much money and power and wealth, and yet you still feel empty. He goes looking. And so he uses his power for himself. It becomes about Ravi. I'm not above this. King David was not above this. Humans can't handle power. We're no good at it. And what gets lost in all of this are, are those who have been victimized, those who are the real least of these, those who needed to be protected, but instead it becomes about me. Uh, I just listened, if you're interested, uh, it's an investigative journalist podcast called Gangster Capitalism. Its third season is all about Jerry Falwell Jr. and Liberty University. And it's horrible. You not only have a sex scandal, you have land, shady dealings, financial scandal. I mean, awful. He's had to step down as the president. Liberty University is the, se I mean, it's the largest Christian university in the world. They have over 100,000 students in their online program. I mean, this is like major influence. It's like the evangelical power center of the United States. And it is, the corruption goes so deep and has existed for so long, has required so many people to turn the other way. It's depressing. It's deflating. How can someone, how can, a, how can these individuals who claim Christ as Lord be no different, no better? Because we can't handle power. That's why. Because power, when used for selfish gain, is just so tempting, we can't say no. We'll do so much good. Think about all the good liberty does. Think about all the students we reach. Think about the way we shape American politics. Think about, but in the end, it perverts, and it twists, and it contorts. And Jesus never goes after it. In fact, actively rejects it over and over again. Or I think about, and this is not all evangelical Christians. I don't want to make that generalization. But I think about Christians, and I hear them talk about, like, religious freedom, but I fear what they want is Christian power. Religious freedom is really Christian power. And so I think about all the Christian symbols during the insurrection of January 6th, right? So I think about symbols like this as they're, as they're storming into the Capitol, right? Or I think about images like this. I think about images like this. We're falling into the same exact trap to say we're going to take power, we're going to make, we're going to change, we're going to control we're going to make people Christian. We'll make this country Christian. That's how power ends up making us look like everyone else in the world. It's a power grab. It's not religious freedom. It's Christian power. And that makes me incredibly nervous. And this, again, this is not exclusive to one group. It's not just evangelicals or not just Catholics. United Methodists are just as guilty. We've had many scandals related to power, cover-up, all of that. The warning is for each of us in the room. The warning is for this community here to say, we have more power than we think. I certainly do. 
more prestige, more influence. How do we ensure that this does not become about Joe or you or you, but whatever we have, we, are, we, are, we give it to God, we are blessed, we are broken, and we are poured out. It is, it is to leave me to go to others. It is to empower, to uplift, to care for, and it should not be about the accumulation of power or influence or wealth. Amen? This is the last temptation of Jesus. I can only imagine how much Jesus wanted to call down an army of angels. I can only imagine how much Jesus wanted to like overthrow stupid Herod and establish. I can only imagine how much Jesus wanted to be king. And he runs away. He says, nope. Will I do the same, right? When the voice of power calls for me, when Al Pacino is playing on my desire to be loved, cared for and seen in a particular way? Or will my loyalty be to higher principles in the person of Jesus, compassion, love, self-sacrifice? Let's pray. Lord, you have shown us, you modeled how to relate to power. You've shown us that it cannot fill the void in our soul as much as we think it will. The next thing we purchase, the next person, the next relationship we're in, the next, we think that will fill, but that's not the food that fills. That's the food that leaves us hungry again. And you showed us how to take what we have been given and to use it to empower others. And Lord, all we can pray is that you would give us the strength, the courage, the faith to follow you into powerlessness to follow you into obscurity, to follow you on a downward trajectory, downward mobility to those who desperately need you. And so give us that strength today, Lord, we pray. Amen. If you would please stand for...